Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friends Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer. Today, I am joined by Makone Maja. Makone, how are you doing today? Hello, good to be back here on the Longo Forum podcast and to see Michael again. Both very good things. And of course, we are joined today by Mr. Michael Morris as well. Michael, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. And and all the better for seeing McCorney too. <laughs> Thanks for that welcoming gesture uh, from you. Yeah. All well, thanks. So, uh, just as a sort of public service announcement, um, this was probably the last registration weekend that was held uh, now. And that means that soon they are going to announce the election date. The moment the election date is announced, you can no longer register to vote. So if you have missed your chance to register to vote at your voting station, go to the IEC's website and register if you are eligible, um, if you want to cast your vote in the elections, which will probably be in May. Um, but uh, that remains to be seen. Okay, um, with that out of the way, let us go off with our first story today. And today we're going to have to talk about, of course, one of those topics that's not super sexy, but it's a bit grim um, in, its, uh, in, in what it says about where South Africa is as a country. And that is, there are, as the headlines say, red flags as the budget deficit widens to 6% of GDP. This is the biggest gap in the as in the, the the budget in at least two years when of course we had that huge drop during um, the beginning of COVID and it shows that government's efforts despite you know Karanguana's efforts to try and rein in or at least you know memos expressing his interest to rein in government spending um, are not being particularly successful uh, the national treasury's most recent data says that public finances are in a bad shape with a budget deficit from 5.7% in November on a 12-month sum basis to 6% in December. Um, and this is the largest deficit in more than two years. Um, and we're losing many tens of billions of rands uh, uh, per per uh, a year as a result of this, uh, more than we would have. Um, the increase reflected lower revenue performance, higher wage bill costs, and higher projected debt service costs. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that, you know, you're not going to put out this memo uh, a while ago saying we need to take all these radical measures to rein in spending. So, you know, we need to freeze hiring. We need to clamp down on, on all sorts of uh, frivolous spending, that kind of stuff. And yet you see that the wage bill continues to grow. And that is, I think, in many ways, the part that the ANC really can't tackle, particularly because some of those um, people receiving public wages are their most uh, sort of fervent, strongest supporters. And they really don't want to disrupt um, the the loyalty of that group in an election year. So here's, I think, McCorney, the real problem for the ANC is that the, 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 the deficit crisis that we've been talking about for a while, which was briefly postponed by better-than-expected mining taxes um, a while ago, uh, really seems to now be crunching. And the ANC is left in this sort of dire situation where if it doesn't rein in spending, it's not going to have the money to be able to pay grants, uh, which are so important for its sort of offer to the South African people. But it also is going to run out of money to pay caters in the patronage network and the only way to have enough money for grants is to cut the public wage bill for the caters. And so it's kind of on the horns of a dilemma of its own making. Do you agree with that assessment? What do you make of this? 
Yeah, definitely. They seem to be encountering a lot of conflicting and managing a lot of conflicting interests. Um, it is only a matter of time before you see a lot of this excessive government spending spilling over um, and creating that that gap between what government actually has in terms of revenue and what it can afford um, in terms of service delivery. Uh, but another concern of ours that we've been flagging um, 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 concerns about is that debt servicing costs. I mean, they, we, about our, our government revenue, about 25% of government revenue goes toward debt servicing costs. And so we used to have this graph back at the CRA that just shows you how at the top we had these debt servicing costs that were slowly widening and squeezing out other government elements that arguably money would go towards like public health and education and safety right. and security. We're spending a similar amount on debt servicing costs, basically just paying the interest on our debt as we mm. are to our entire education budget. Is that correct? I think that's about right. And that's that's insane, right? About a quarter of our, of our budget goes toward paying for loans or servicing government debt. And so what we should expect now, seeing that government is not actually able to make up its revenue, is that they'll be borrowing more, which means government debt servicing costs will be exacerbated. What you're also seeing growing is that debt to GDP ratio, which the IMF has been concerned about for a while now, saying that South Africa is edging closely towards that 75% mark um, in terms of debt to GDP ratio. And and so, yeah, it seems our economy is, is going to rely more and more on loans because we're not making up enough revenue. Uh, a lot of people are being squeezed out um, by just inflation eating into people's salaries but yeah also that the economy is not growing and so we're not actually able to employ more people to generate more revenue create more opportunities for gdp to grow and that sort of thing um and so the irr has actually written a paper on this gabriel Krauss is the author of that paper i think it's going to be titled the irr's public finances report and in it they cover a lot of the topics we're covering now just about spending and what government can do to actually um discipline it's spending and in it Gabriel actually makes a radical proposal of cutting that from 15% to 11.5% because clearly government's not very effective at spending money right people who earn money are better at spending money that they've they've worked so hard for than government and he performs a lot of assessments using various metric um and in it ultimately the conclusion he arrives at is that by cutting that and giving back that roughly 100 billion rand that would come up with freeing up 3% of the VAT rate um, by giving that back in terms of consumer buying power to uh, private individuals. You'll have that money better spent by individuals than it would arguably be within government control. So when you're the government, right, you have sort of three options for how you can try and deal with a debt problem. <clears throat> You can try and grow the economy, um, which is exactly what, what Gabriel's talking about there, I think, in that paper, is that by if you give money back to people and allow them to spend it, uh, they will grow the economy and there'll be less inefficiency and waste. Um, and then in the end, that'll result in a bigger economy to tax. Uh, so you get end up getting more revenue, which, which closes the, the financial gap. You can cut spending, but the ANC doesn't really want to do that because, of course, uh, that's really difficult um, it comes lots of political costs. It makes lots of people angry with you. No one likes the cutting of spending. So that leaves, if you don't want to grow the economy and you don't want to 
cut things, then you just have to raise taxes. But South Africa seems to be at a point where if we raise taxes anymore, um, we're just going to even further cripple economic growth and um, would not really get that much revenue because businesses will uh, not be able to grow and therefore uh, will, will, will sort of stagnate, resulting in less tax revenue overall. So it really seems like there are sort of no good options left for the government apart from what we always talk about, which is these economic reforms, changing up the labor market, cutting taxes, opening space for business, stuff like that so that the economy can actually grow. The other two options that the ANC may be tempted to take are just sort of non-starters. Although, of course, I don't think this will stop them raising the syntax again on cigarettes and uh, alcohol by a substantial amount. Um, Michael, what do you make of all this? Mm. Well, just a, I mean, a, a sort of counter scenario to, to what's, what we're talking about. And I, I've come back to some detailed figures, which I just happen to be looking at the weekend, which reinforce exactly what uh, what you and, and McCorney have just said. Um, and I like that word uh, McCorney used, squeezed. I think consumers are being squeezed, taxpayers are being squeezed, the tax base is being squeezed, uh, and none of this is good. But just a, a, a prefatory sort of picture um, which I think was brought out in John Endress' uh, growth report. Uh, a 2018, a study by the Bureau of Economic Research at the University of Stellenbosch showed that the South African economy could have been up to 30% or 1 trillion rand larger and created 2.5 million more jobs had the country kept pace with other emerging markets and sub-Saharan African economies over the past 10 years. So that's not really a long time. Uh, 30%. One trillion larger, two point five million jobs. So that that really does focus on uh, or focus attention on what we keep saying is policies which make it easier for people to go into business, for easier for businesses to expand, employ more people, export more easily. We, we you know we have this ongoing issue with infrastructure problems, both ports and electricity, and so on. So that you know that that is the kind of positive uh, the positive prospect. If we if we do the right things, um, uh, McCorney was talking about the debt servicing costs. Um, whenever I read this figure, I always think it, it has to be a mistake. Um, but here it is: more than we we are paying more than one billion rand every day on debt servicing costs. I mean, that just, this is just a, almost a figure that you know has to be made up, has to be excessive by several noughts, but it isn't. Um, and the the example, uh, Nicholas, I think you mentioned uh, education. The the example that I found at the weekend, I think also in John's paper, um, that annual debt service costs are, high, are far higher than the entire two hundred and fifty nine billion healthcare budget. You know, so we we're talking about nationalising healthcare and and adding to the sort of cost and tax burden to deal with health, but we're already paying much much more than we we're paying at the moment on on healthcare. Uh, to, just to to service um, service the debt annually, um, and you mentioned also the, you know the, the huge difficulty with um, uh, the, with you know cutting costs because uh, so many people are depending on on government spending on staff and so on. Fifty eight point four percent of South Africa's gross tax revenue is taken up by public service salaries. You know, there's more, you know it's almost sixty percent of gross tax revenue goes 
to public service salaries. And that tax revenue is, in fact, being, as McCorney has indicated, squeezed uh, very considerably. Uh, I, I came across a figure th yesterday. There are just 7.1 million individual taxpayers, and that's down from 7.4 million a year ago. Um, and in 2022, 2 million taxpayers paid 80% of all income tax towards uh, critical things like uh, like uh, grants and so on. And those also have increased by considerable size. I don't want to go into any further details, but I think the picture is quite clear. And as you say, Nicholas, um, the challenge is really, and McCorney also, it's not a question of finding ways to squeeze the economy anymore, but to actually allow the economy to grow. In, widen the tax base, get more income, and 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 so on. Uh, it we, we can't uh, uh, redistribute or share out any differently what we've already got to get ourselves out of the hole. We've actually got to just grow things and do things better. No, exactly. Uh, just to uh, McCorney, before I come to you again, um, Oh, I forgot completely what I was going to say. Anyway, McConaughey, do you have final thoughts on this while I try and remember yeah. what I was going to say? I think Michael already touched on the NHI as one proposal that's being put forward that just, it's not clear to me how it makes sense given how the public finances of the country are run, where that money is going to come from, but also the perpetual rolling out. I think that's what's happening, the slow boiling of the frog in terms of that um, SRD grant that, that's just been slowly <laughs> and quietly rolled out well into perpetuity as one of the grants that will now be um, um, given to people uh, without the conditions that were placed forward during COVID. But yeah, it's not clear to me how putting forward policies like that is supposed to enable economic growth and actually provide relief, much needed relief to the middle class, which is also, I mean, just under immense pressure mm. to the few people that are left paying taxes in the country, as Michael um, listed those statistics showing that really, if you give the ratio of taxpayers to grant recipients, that's not a model for economic growth. That's a model for government dependency. That's a that, that's not a that's not what people want either. If you look at um if you look at some of our, our polling, right. And just just to make a, a additional point, while you know you're completely correct what you say about income tax uh, recipients, um, that is a tax that is paid by absolutely everyone, unless you're mm. literally sort of only buying basic food items. So. Uh, to a certain degree, and that's, I think, why, why Gabriel's paper was targeting that in particular, because it is the tax that is paid by everyone. It is the tax that um, th that affects people the most. Um, I mean, it's a 15% increase on the price of everything except bread and milk, basically. Uh, yeah. two, two things I wanted to say, you know, if we were spending 60% of our public um, income on uh, on, on, on wages to, to government officials, but we were getting, I don't know, Swiss levels of service. There's an argument to be made there, you know, maybe that, mm. that that's a system that could work for us. But we're not getting Swiss levels of service. Mm. Um, and one more thing I wanted to add, a, you know, a sort of critique of this made by other, by some people I've seen is that, you know, is this debt such a big problem? Look at the US, the US has its worst GDP to debt ratio. The, the European countries that also have big debt problems. And, you know, their, their economies are seen as not in 
imminent danger of collapse. But there are some major differences. You know, when you have the world's reserve currency, when you have stable political systems, when you have low levels of corruption, when you have robust economies that, you know, even if they're not growing fantastically, you know, can produce good output every single year. You can afford to play a little bit of silly buggers with your national debt. But if you are an emerging market with it's a little bit politically unstable, that has all sorts of social, deep social problems, that has, uh, uh, you know, huge levels of corruption, as we've recently been talking about on the show. You can't just go running around spending money like crazy because foreign markets will not trust you and they will abandon you and cause some very serious consequences if you don't uh, take this stuff seriously. And, uh, and there's just, go ahead, just one, one little uh, uh, sort of point to add there, your point about the United States. You know, our employment is running on the, on the official rate about 30%. The United States is about 35 uh, I mean, that's such a... Yeah, right. There's a the difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. almost half of people here are not working, um, mm-hmm. whereas in the US, it's, it's, mm-hmm. almost, it's almost full employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, let's move on to our next topic for today. Um, and this is the South African Human Rights Commission has come out with a 252-page report into the chaos that was the July 2021 Mm -hmm. riots, where we saw parts of Kharteng, but especially parts of KZN engulfed by violence, chaos, uh, vigilantism, looting of shops, burning down of shopping centers, just utter madness. It was a very interesting look, I think, at South African society, and I think we can probably draw some conclusions from it. But the South African Human Rights Commission's report, um, while it detailed a lot of the events that happened from killings to talking about race relations between uh, black South Africans and Indian South Africans, um, it didn't identify what it called primary actors or um, a linkage between Jacob Zuma and and the, the riots. And this has actually been a little bit of a topic for debate, I think, amongst ourselves is... There is one sort of school of thought that says that, uh, you know, this was orchestrated by uh, people aligned with Jacob Zuma in response to his arrest, um, which happened the week before the riots. Um, And there's another school of thought which basically says that all of the pent up social ills are really more the focus here and that the the Zuma thing was kind of really a bit of a sideshow that might have been the spark, but that's... uh, 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 sort of the result yeah and we've seen a number of people i think there were 12 people who are mostly just low-level people who have, like ran whatsapp groups or something um have been charged with instigating this stuff and i think one or two of them have been sentenced so far but so mccorner let me start with you on this one um what do you make of this i mean what do you make of of the causes of those riots how big of a factor do you think politics actually played in them at the end of the day I am generally very suspicious of this idea that South Africa will have um, sort of a social unrest due to socio-economic climate that we kind of described earlier with the first topic, just that there's just too many people who are unemployed, too many people who are dependent on grants, and that the economy is not producing any econ- eco- any, any opportunities to sort of absorb people so that they too can become economically active um, in a meaningful way, of course. Um, so I'm, I'm usually very suspicious of, of just this idea that South Africa is on the brink of social unrest. It almost feels to me like 
seeds are being sown in people's minds to sort of give them ideas about being restless and then that ultimately spilling onto the social scene. Um, so I, 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 yeah, that, that's one of my suspicions. The other one is, I mean, big riots and big uh, protests are very curious to me. Um, I'll just tell you one story quickly. Recently I watched um, and even heard of, watched a video of people who are protesting in, in the UK and they just walked up, grabbed the placard and were holding it up in the streets and there were these thousands of people onto the streets. And when they, when they asked them what their placards meant, they had no idea, but they felt very strongly about issues being put forward, right? Mm-hmm. And when they specifically asked them, like for, for example, what does from the river to the sea mean? It, it was one of those Palestine-Israel protests. They had no idea. They couldn't tell you from which from which river to which sea or even what the implications of that would be and how they would handle them. And virtually everyone, well, perhaps this is how the video was curated so that they only included people that couldn't answer that question. But it just seemed to me that these huge protests and huge riots, uh, there's a bit of an accident that happens in how people come together, um, that yes, people feel convicted, deeply convicted about certain things, but not in very great detail. And this, the July riots is just one of those for me where I think various factors played a role in just the level of violence. One, every time I look up that number, 350 people died. It, it sounds like what Michael said to me. It just sounds like one of those made up numbers because there was really no real recognition of the extreme loss of lives that happened over just one short week, right? Well, it wasn't one week, but the the, the the extreme violence happened over a relatively short period of time. And so, yeah, these huge riots, huge protests are very curious to me. It feels like very many moving elements take place and there's so many factors to account for that. I can definitely see why people would think that... Um, President Zuma's uh, uh, arrest would be one of those issues that would certainly be have a causal relationship to um, why specifically KwaZulu-Natal and not the rest of the provinces in the country were in such an uproar, right? Because this didn't happen in Limpopo, this didn't happen in the Eastern Cape. Uh, there, there was some unrest in Gauteng, but not nearly at the extent and the level of KZN. And to just sweep that under the rug as it being because of the tension between Indians and Black. <laughs> Not very convinced by that. So yeah, very yeah, curious. That, 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 was a whole, that was a whole kind of aspect of this that emerged, particularly in the aftermath, is that there was a sort of the story of they're called the Phoenix Killings, which was this idea that uh, uh, Indian South Africans had just gone around and murdered Black South Africans during the riots. And then like figures would be trotted out about the numbers of dead. Um, on social media and people were claiming lots of things but those figures were often things like everyone who died regardless of cause in in an area and so it would be like uh, someone was hit by a car and then that that was included in the reported numbers and then people would assume just assume that, that was some kind of racial thing and i think um that attempt to sort of I, I don't know. McCona, what do you, you you said you don't buy it particularly but can you expand on that a little bit i mean you know it really does seem like um that was kind of a bit of a ginned up thing. They may, I, I mean, I think there are underlying truths to that, that there are some sort of racial tensions in that part of the world. But I don't I think that that was... About those, yeah, sorry, Nick. About those Indian um, people who were protecting their property, um, 
the question I would ask to people that think that that was simply a racial issue is, do you think that if the rioters had been colored or Indian or white, English white people, Afrikaans white people, if the rioters had been any other race other than black, would those Indians have responded in the exact same way? I suspect they would have because they were protecting their houses and they were protecting their businesses. But if you think that, no, they specifically targeted black people because they're black and because there's racial animosities between those two groups, then I, 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 we will differ there. So, Michael, what do you make of all this? The, the sort of, I mean, look, it's just to give it one cause, I think is always wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, I've heard people involved with security and that kind of stuff say things like uh, at some of the shopping centers, there was obviously an organized attempt to sort of kick the riots off by like ramming the gates open with like a truck or something like that. And there was there was a level of planning and sophistication that that was beyond um, what anyone would expect from something spontaneous. And yet at the same time, there was very clearly to me something of riot psychology here. So the idea of how a riot starts is you basically have a crowd and most people won't just break the law. And all it takes is a couple of sort of unstable individuals in a crowd to be the first actors, to throw the first rock, to break the first window. And the moment that sort of taboo begins to dissolve, much more reasonable, calm people actually begin to join in in the riot. And I've been in in, in a street riot before, and as sort of madness overtakes you, you kind of feel the emotional energy of the crowd. You sort of, you know, you lose your sense of self to a degree and you become very hyped up on, on, on adrenaline and emotions and feelings and that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, if there had been no big social problems in KZN in particular, um, there would have been a bit of trouble. There would have maybe been a little sort of low scale looting. There would have been some riots and burning tires and nonsense. But the moment it became big enough, it reached a critical mass, it became a little bit like a nuclear reaction. And that everyone was like, you know, I don't give a stuff about Jacob Zuma, but holy moly, do I want a free TV. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and the the video I always remember is a guy filming himself looting a macro or or a spa or something, (laughs) um, hitting his face into a a cake uh, and eating it without his hands uh, while he was filming himself and then sort of pulling his head up and looking at the camera and laughing and smiling. There was, shall we say, very little mention of Zuma in, in that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, just your point about, and McCurney's point too, about, you know, mob behavior and, and what the this curious aspect of, our, of us as humans is that we, we kind of uh, behave differently when, we, when there's that sort of mass uh, hysteria happening. I often think of... Uh, little passage in that marvelous book by Denise Reitz of his participation, young man participation in the, in the Boer War. Uh, he was the man who latterly became a senior officer in a, in a British regiment in the Western Front in the First World War and was South Africa's ambassador uh, to, to London uh, uh, later on. Uh, very sort of uh, uh, urbane and patrician sort of figure of South African politics at that time. But as a young man in the Boer War, he gives an account of charging down into Richmond as the British forces had been forced to withdraw and racing into a house and just smashing things, smashing a piano um, for no rhyme or reason, just caught up in the passion of the moment and the 
whatever it was, the triumphalism and the opportunity and everything just combined subtly to produce this kind of weird sparkling. So it is, it is an odd thing. It's, and, uh, you know, people tend to think of it as savage or it's you know, uncivilized, whatever. There's no such thing. It's, we're all equivalently prone, it seems, to, the, to, these, to these impulses. So I, I kind of agree with, with McCorney. Uh, I'm, 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 you know, the, if, there's a, if there's a given interpretation, then it, it's really there's a, a body of opinion that wants to try and exploit that to say, you know, this is what is the trouble in South Africa. It's Jacob Zuma, or this is what is the problem. And I, I've been guilty of it. I've, I, I've made points about, you know, this is where you reflects social frustration and so on. But I, I hear what McCorney is saying, that it, maybe it isn't really all that. And it was relatively, in a sense, relatively contained and was over. You know, it sort of ended without there being, I mean, there was no policing or, 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 or security action. Uh, I think the taxi drivers stepped in and did, 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 some, did some things. Um, and shot um, some people. Yeah, right, indeed, indeed. But I think I always got the sense that people suddenly began to think, well, you know, we, the, the opportunity to get cooking oil and TVs and all the rest of it, that's sort of going away. But now we're running out of milk and the petrol stations aren't open and this, this isn't really working for us. Um, so I think the, the you know the, the genuine kind of opportunity to to get something uh, kind of passed, and once it had passed, it, it wasn't as if the whole thing then spilled over into uh, yeah, so, violence so in so the like suburbs. And the police mm. didn't really reestablish control. It's sort of just like yeah. the enthusiasm died. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we we were speaking earlier. I mean, your story about the cake. Uh, my favorite one is the guy who parked in the in an awkward spot in the road to, and was packing his trying to pack his car with beer i think and he had a tv but he had to sort of switch things around but throughout this whole thing he had his hazards gay and, and so this is like you know i'm just a normal guy i'm law-abiding i know i've got to put my hazards on because i have a traffic hazard here just bear with me for a moment i just want to repack my car <laughs> um so and that almost in a way took out quite a lot of the threat i think of the thing people if, if you were able to sit back and say, well, okay, you know, this this guy just saw an opportunity to, to get something that maybe in his lifetime he, he can never picture getting because the economy is not ever going to deliver the job or the opportunities that would enable him to do these things. I mean, that's just one interpretation. Um, but he's not a he's not a criminal. This guy is not a, you know, he's not out and out kind of savage criminal. He's just an ordinary bloke who sees an opportunity and in a society that doesn't deliver very many opportunities for getting nice surprises so yeah it's a it is a it's a complex thing um but one has to be careful of laying all these various fancies interpretations on it and not just seeing the human element um mm. yeah it it was yeah it was it was indeed a strange time i don't know if it's the same clip you're talking about but the sort of i remember a reporter standing there and then this Guy, was, yes. can't, you can't fit the TV into his car. It's just, and I think it, the reporter tried to ask him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do know that several yeah, yeah. people uh, who, who had taken part in the looting were interviewed yeah. by the media a year later, and a lot of them expressed regret, mostly because they said, you know, people, my, my relatives or my friends worked at that shopping center, and now actually it's, it's no longer yeah. it's burned down. Sure. Um, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I don't think we have time for our last story, but uh, McCorney, any final thoughts on this? A uh, very complex issue. Um, 
I, like the person who, one of the people who invited to comment on the story, wonder why there's very little relationship between uh, the report that came out that was commissioned by the president and this one by the HRC. There, there seems to be very little overlap. And all that shows actually that there's a huge lacuna in, in security affairs in South Africa and in intelligence because there's still no real deep insights that are provided by, by both papers, if anything, they just seem to have put a lot of public opinion together and then push it out as a as a report, which are very, very interesting. Yeah, the best thing about doing a report is if it's long enough, no one will read through the whole thing. <laughs> so you could kind of say whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, that's all the time we have for today. Um, I hope that you found this interesting and we will be back tomorrow on the Daily Print Show. Cheers, everyone.